Oh, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Um, and would you mind taking these from me? Oh, thanks. There you go. I, um, Matt was joking with me that I took a very literal application of Rick's sermon from last week. Um, being wounded and broken, walking in that. Um, <clears throat> so uh, the, the story is, the story is, as I was soaring through the air to dunk on my son, he, in his humiliation, he ran underneath me and undercut me. No, no, I, I just, um, yeah, I was trying to do something that I was not equipped to do on the basketball court. Um, so... Hopefully just a sprain and all will be okay, but I would ask you to pray. We're getting on a plane on Tuesday to go on a three-week trip where we're supposed to walk all over Ireland and Cluj. Um, so I don't know, I'm not sure how that's going to work out, but we'll figure it out somehow. Uh, so we're, sorry, um, if I look awkward, I, I feel awkward. <laughs> so just give me a minute here. Um, so we're in a series on First uh, John. We, uh, we, we, we have some overlap with last week, and, and partly I felt compel- compelled to reach back into last week because um, the chapter 2 begins, and you see it in your text, my, chil- my dear children, I write this to you. Um, and and we, we can't really know what this is. You see in the middle there, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Um, and, and well, what is this? And so we're going to roll back the tape a little bit and begin uh, verse 8 and, and then get into chapter 2 up to verse 6. So, th- so that's the reason for the overlap. Uh, let, me, let me read the scripture for us, starting in verse 8. 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. This is God's word. Lord, uh, give us ears to hear as has been prayed. Speak to our hearts. Be our teacher now. Um, Lord, open your word to us that we can be satisfied by your love. Uh, Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, So as some of you know, we just got back from our first youth group missions trip a couple weeks ago. And every missions trip I've been on, uh, there are, there's occasion for pranks. You're living together, sleeping together in the same place, um, and pranks are, are necessary, it seems. And this, this, uh, this time was no, no exception. Um, I, I was, we were all sleeping on the floor of this church, and as I was, it was late one evening, I was the last person to go to bed. Uh, it was about midnight, and 
it's, so it's pitch, it's pitch dark, and I go up to my, my bed where my, my sleeping bag is on the floor, and it kind of became my custom. You're, you're in a strange place. It's not, it's not particularly clean, you know, and, um, and so I, I just began to, like, I just, my routine was to check my area, you know, you, you, you just make sure there's nothing in the sleeping bag that shouldn't be there, um, just kind of brush it out. Uh, so I did that, everything was fine. Um, and then I happened to run my hand on and underneath my pillow. And then as, as I did that, my hand uh, came into contact with something sort of spherical and smooth. Uh, and, and so I didn't know what it was. Again, it was pitch black. I, I pull it out, and, and, uh, and as I hold it up, I managed to get my cell phone light on it. And what, what was sitting under my pillow was an onion. Uh, somebody had placed a raw onion under my pillow. Um, and uh, I, I don't know how long it had been there, but it had been there long enough that my whole pillow had absorbed the, the, onion, the onion aroma. Uh, and, and so what I discovered, uh, it was late, I was extremely tired, and what I ended up doing is I found that if I, if I just kind of put my head on sort of the corner of the pillow, I could sort of avoid most of the aroma um, of the onion. I won't name the individuals involved. Um, however, it, it was, it was, the, it was the, the, the conclusion of what had been uh, an attempt to pass this onion around all week. Somebody had found an onion, and, and um, some people had onions put in the bottom of their sleeping bag the next night. Um, that was the, so you can imagine, just, just kept going. Anyway, well, why do I bring this up? Uh, an, an onion, uh, I, I, I was the, the power of an onion was revealed to me in a way that I didn't realize before. And uh, what, we, what, you, what I realized as I was thinking about this passage is that um, an onion under a pillow is a lot like the way lies work and deception works uh, in our world. Lies, by their nature, don't actually just lay dormant, right? If they had put maybe, um, I don't know, an apple under there, it probably may be largely unnoticed. Uh, you know, you can think of other things. Um, if even they'd put like a small um, like tennis ball under there, it would have laid rather dormant, right? I wouldn't have known. Maybe it would have, I would have noticed it. Uh, but but the, the onion, um, by its nature, it permeates and it overtakes everything around it. And this is the way lies work and deception works. Uh, they, they take up residence and they linger and you cannot just wait it out. It will stay. It will remain. Uh, and even after you've removed the source of the lie, the, the aroma remains in, in the place that it was. Um, and this is the way lies work. They're, they're not simply an annoyance, but they actually mask, mask smells that should be there otherwise. And, and they blind us to what actually the smell of a pillow should be. Um, and so this is actually the, the question that, that is facing you, whether you kind of are, are ready to receive it or not this morning. We all live in, in a world, and we participate in a world that is wheeling and dealing in lies. And wheels and deals, in, and we, we are all giving each other onions under our pillow. And it's a vivid image, and I hope it stays with you. You sleep with um, the aroma of deception and lies that, that our world tells and that we, we also participate in sharing with each other. And, and so here, what are some of the lies that perhaps you've, you've wrestled with this week um, and that, that our world can feed to us? Um, one of those is my life is not worth living. Uh, the suicide rate in our country is alarming. 
There is a persistent lie that comes to this. That comes to this. Your life is not worth living. Uh, another one might be, life would be better if everybody accepted my advice. Sort of permeates the way some, some of us are, isn't it? Uh, and another lie that we sometimes accept, I will never be able to be healed from my past. Nothing can, can heal me from, from what's happened. And so the, the question this passage addresses is, uh, how do we get light when we're surrounded by the darkness of these lies, right? How do we, how do we get out of this aroma um, of, of deception? And John's letters are largely trying to address this question. They're letters to what we think are Jewish house churches, early, early, um, the early church, um, we, probably in Ephesus. And what you notice is that you read through the letters, and certainly in, in Second and Third John, is that the, the house churches are experiencing this sort of um, disruption and this, uh, this disunity. They're facing sort of a crisis of truth. Uh, there's deceivers in their midst uh, that are trying to stir up division. And, and so throughout the letter, what you'll notice is that um, the writer is, he's repeatedly trying to bring clarity, right? Because he's trying to sort out all these deceptions. And you notice, if you read through the letter, and, and we recommend that whenever we do a series, and we, we often say this, it's always good to just read through the whole thing you know, a couple times just to get the, the sense of the, whole, the wholeness of it. But you notice John repeatedly says things like, this is how you know blank. This is how you'll know this. Um, we know that this is true. Or he'll say, if this is the case, then this is true. So he's trying, you see what he's doing? He's trying to like help you sort through what is true from what is false. Uh, and most most. Fervently, most, uh, with, with the most power comes right away in the first passage that Angelo preached on a couple weeks ago. John starts off by saying, we're proclaiming what we've heard, what we've seen, what we've touched with our own hands, right? This is how we know it's true. We're going to the source. Uh, and, and so this is, this, is a, this is a good letter for us to sort through the lies that we face in, in, in our own life. And how do we confront them and how do we get to the truth? And so I want to explore this. Um, uh, how do we get to the truth under three headings? Lies, bind, and blind. The truth sets us free to be a people of cross and kingdom. So th these lies, they bind us, they blind us, but the truth sets us free, not just to be sort of free, but free to be a people of the cross and the kingdom. So if, um, the first thing to notice in the text uh, is what these lies are about. And, and that's why, partly why I wanted to go back into chapter 1. You notice um, that they're all about the nature of sin and what it means to know God. So huge topics, not, not unimportant things to be sure about. And you, so you notice in verse 8, um, he's doing, he's doing, he does this, if we claim. Sort of saying, if you face, if somebody were to say, for those of you who are saying this among your, your church, if we claim to be without sin... So there's this lie that, that we, can, we're, we, don't, we no longer have a sinful nature that's out there. Verse 10, skipping down to verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned, in other words, maybe, maybe we look at our life and we say, well, I do a few things here and there, but none of it really rises to the level of sin. So you can see, see the progression here. Uh, the lie, first lie, no longer sinful nature. Second lie, well, that also means maybe, maybe the things we do don't ever rise to the seriousness of sin. And then finally, um, in verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4, whoever says, I know him, whoever says, I know him. So, 
Clearly, there's some sort of conversation happening. People are saying, oh, yeah, I know God, and yet their lives show no evidence of that. I can know God as sort of an intellectual idea that has no, nothing to do with my daily life. So th these are the three lies that, that he's dealing with in this passage. And, and so, so that, that's what it's about. Then notice, notice what those lies do. Notice the progression. As, as the knowledge of sin diminishes, the will to obey diminishes. You see that? I, I claim to be without sin. I claim I have not sinned. And now it doesn't matter if I obey. So as their knowledge of sin diminishes, their will to obey diminishes. And I, actually, I wonder if that's like kind of counterintuitive to us. And maybe the way the world thinks about what, what the scriptures teach. Um, it, you put it positively, right? My awareness of sin actually increases my will to obey. Does that seem kind of counterintuitive to you? The, the more I see my sinful nature, the more I'm led to obey. And we'll, we'll see how that plays out. But, but he's, he's showing how this progression is, is spreading. A decrease in knowledge of sin, a decrease in obedience. And so you can see how these lies actually aren't just merely academic. They're not just taking place in a classroom, but how destructive a lie like that would be for a church community. Think about it, a little house church, your small group. And the notion of sin is, is getting watered down to the point people are claiming, I don't even think I do sin. Think about how destructive that would be for your small group. And then following that, I don't necessarily need to obey God. I know him, sure I know him. Like, let's be honest. Like, does that really matter, like, so much? About? Think about how that would tear apart the community of your small group, this little house church. And so, so you see then um, John, John describes the blindness that follows. So going back to those three verses, verse 8, verse 10, and then chapter 2, verse 4. If we claim to be without sin, what happens? We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So we become blind to ourselves. Then verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, what happens? We make him, being God, out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. So we're deceiving ourselves, we're blind to ourselves, and now we're blind to God. We're calling him a liar. And then verse, verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. So th this, this follows, this makes sense, right? If I'm blind to myself and I'm blind to God, then I'm certainly going to be blind to my relationship with God, aren't I? Right? I, I'm not going to know what it is to be in relationship with him. So, so what are these lies doing? The lies actually expel the truth from the community, and they blind the community to themselves, to God, and to their relationship with him. This darkness is spreading, and John is trying to deal with it. Uh, I, I think we know something about this in our own life. Uh, as some of you might be familiar with, hopefully, if you're not, I would invite you to be familiar with the movie The Princess Bride. Uh, there's the, one of the all-time sort of well-known quotes from that movie. There's a, a character, um, Vizini, I think is his name. Vizini. Uh, yes, Vizini, the Sicilian. He's a Sicilian. Uh, in the movie, that he, he famously says that. Um, and he's leading this small group of bandits on sort of all these hijinks, and, and they're, they're doing all these things. And every time something goes wrong... What does he cry out? Inconceivable. Inconceivable. Every time something goes wrong, he yells, inconceivable. And he does, he's, so many times, repeatedly, every time something goes wrong, 
to the point where one of, the, the, one of his crew, um, he said, they have this exchange, he yells, inconceivable, and one of his crew turns to him and says, you keep saying that word. I do not think that word means what you think it means. And it's just, I, I can't quite deliver it uh, the, the way he does, but it's, it's this hilarious moment that, because it points out, he, he's using this word so often that the meaning of it has actually lost, it's lost all its meaning. He's, it's just sort of his, punk, his punchline for anything that happens. Uh, and, and I wonder if you've ever encountered somebody sort of like that in your life. Uh, somebody who's sort of blind, they, they have this knowledge, they use these words, but they actually are blind to what it actually means. Right? Inconceivable for this character. Um, but people, we, we've experienced this, maybe somebody you work with um, is like this. Certainly, I remember as a teacher, uh, I, there were two kinds of veteran teachers. There are those who have become uh, sort of humble practice, uh, improve year after year after year and become masters of their craft. Uh, and then there's another road. There, there's the road of teacher who has decided very early on what the truth is about teaching without any regard for what that means for kids or for how a school works. And that is the way they're going to teach for the next 30 years. And you, here's how you know it, you have a teacher like that. Every year, the problem is these kids today, right? These kids today are, are less attentive. They're less interested in learning. Um, they're less engaged, is what they'll say. And, and I want to say to those teachers, I don't think that word engagement means what you think it means, right? Uh, they're set in their ways. They think they're teaching, but really they're just doing what they want to do. Maybe you're not, maybe this isn't hitting home. Certainly, I would imagine everybody has somebody in our family like this. There's, there's a story about how something has gone in the family, often over many years, and there's typically one person who sees it differently than everybody else. Uh, that, that, that somehow the wrongs have been interpreted, right? They're the victim of everything, and everyone else in the family is saying, no, actually, you're the one who's, you know, or... Or maybe even just a humorous story, like my, the story that will grow with my son over my sprained ankle. Um, the truth will now become I was dunking on Micah, and, um, and, and, all, and all that will grow over years. Um, but but we, know, we know of people, we've interacted with other people who, um, they, they're set in a particular story and they're blind to what actually the truth is about themselves. Uh, the, the truth is, though, I've, I've sort of, I, I think it's helpful to think about other people, but the truth is, um, if you're thinking about somebody else right now, you, you know actually that's you as well. I hate to break it to you, but you have blind spots, and there's things that you think are true about yourself and about the way other people have treated you that actually you're wrong about, and that you actually are living out of some of that self-deception and untruth in your own life. That's true of all of us. Uh, let, let me just, maybe a, a way to draw this out is, is to look at some, some scripture. Scripture can help us see maybe some of where we've, we've placed these onions in our own life, so to speak. Um, Psalm, Psalm 139. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your work, works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you 
when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. What does the scripture confront you with? Some of you have been telling yourself the lie that that no one likes you, that your life is not worthy of living, that you have no value, that God has forsaken you. And, and right, right here in scripture, we see what's revealed is a little bit of self-deception. No, no, God is telling you, I have seen you in your mother's womb. I made you. I love you. You see how it comes up against and reveals a little bit of the way we're telling ourselves untruths about ourselves. Or maybe try this. Where, where do you claim to know God, as, as John's trying to confront, and yet not obey him? Where in your life do you say, I know God, but you, you know there's not obedience in your life to what he's called you to. W- one way to, for me, as I've, as I've thought about this, is God is calling me to be generous with my money. Uh, to care about the orphan and the widow and the impressed. To be about, my budget should be about God's kingdom purposes. And I will tell you that I don't know that my Amazon orders reflect that. There's a little bit of a, de- a deception in my own life. There's, there's a lie that I've, I've told myself where I know God with my money, but I'm not following through with obedience. Uh, listen to Isaiah 58. Is not this the kind of fasting that I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away your own flesh and blood? I claim to know God, and yet I know in my life, I'm not obeying this. And what it reveals about me is a little bit, not maybe a lot, of self-deception about my relationship with the Lord. That I've allowed to to kind of permeate this lie about the way I spend my money as just an add-on and not the heart of of generosity that God's called me to. So so what, what are we doing here? What are we looking at? Lies blind us to the truth about ourselves. And they, then they also bind us to a story that says, I know God even when I'm not obeying him. And so that, that story then creates a pathway for me to sort of stumble about. And actually, just to kind of, so I narrowed in on you. Let's just kind of come back out. That's actually the story of, uh, that's the human project, right? Is to lie to ourselves and blind ourselves about who God really is and what he calls us to. So how do, we, how do we get free? How does the truth set us free? How do these house churches get back into the light of the truth? Um, how, does, how does John sort of bring course correction here? Well, here's what he doesn't do, which is good to note. Um, and if you're feel, you're feeling, you might be feeling like I just did this. But John doesn't just sort of lob truth bombs at the church. He doesn't just grip them up and say, don't you know you're a sinner, right? He's not, he, do, he doesn't come at them like that. Uh, even though they're, they're, there's, there's a denial of sin in their, in their community. Uh, and he also doesn't do this. He doesn't just sort of engage them in a rational academic discussion either. Uh, how does God bring course correction? How does he bring truth? It's actually not just here, but it's all throughout scripture. Think about the way God intervenes when people are, are sort of about to or in the middle of telling themselves lies. 
God meets and pursues and goes to Adam and Eve in the garden, doesn't he? God hears Hagar's cries in the wilderness. God goes to her and he says, what is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. God goes to Moses in the burning bush and speaks to him. The angel of the Lord comes and wrestles with Jacob. He meets him by the water and he wrestles with him. The angel comes to a depressed Elijah. Elijah said, am I the only one left who follows you? And the angel of the Lord comes to Elijah and reminds him, Elijah, eat some food, drink some water. You're not alone. God, God meets Isaiah in a vision. He meets him and he touches the burning coal to his lips. He meets him with his presence. Jesus meets Mary outside the tomb and says, Mary, and says, says her name and calls him calls her to himself. Jesus invites Thomas to touch his wounds and to, and to be close to him. So the, the, tr the truth comes in scripture never in an abstraction, but always in the presence of God, always in bodily presence. And so that's, that's actually what John does here. He follows suit. He brings a personal invitation, right? Verse one, chapter two, verse one, my dear children, my dear children, Here's how to understand sin. Go to the Father. It's, a it's an invitation. It's not an abstract theological truth. It is an abstract theological truth, but he delivers it as, as, as what it really is underneath. It's a personal invitation. Go to the Father. Confess your sins. Be forgiven. Because when you go, you find an advocate. You find another personal invitation, an advocate who is there to intercede on your behalf. Because he has atoned for your sin. And, and that's why you can go confidently. This, this one that we have seen with our own eyes, which we've touched with our own hands, he made himself a sacrifice for you so that you can be reconciled to the Father. And, and then he says, not only is this for the people of Israel, right? he says in verse 4, not only, not only for Israel, but for, but for the whole world. But for all people. Jew and Gentile. This is a public truth for all of humanity. An event has taken place that we can neither deny nor reject. And, and what John is, is calling them to is this personal invitation, go to the Father. This is um, in John 8. This is, this is what Jesus is. If you go back and read John, by the way, if you just go back and read the Gospel of John, you'll find all kinds of echoes between the Gospel and, and these letters. But uh, at one point in John 8, Jesus says, um, to, the, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if, any, if you hold onto my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And, and the truth is, is Christ himself. It's the presence of the Lord. So this is how, how he brings course correction. This is how the truth sets us free. We go to God. It's a, it's a personal invitation to go to him. And, and so then freedom, what does freedom look like, right? As, as we kind of finish out, what does freedom look like? It, it, two things, to become a people of the cross and the kingdom. We, we move from, so the, the, way, the way I think that it shows, we move from being blinded and bound to lies 
to becoming a people of cross and kingdom. Uh, and, and I've said this a little bit already, but, but this, is, this is where now, what, what do you now go do with this? The, 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 as I've already said, first, first and foremost, you go to the cross. There's an invitation here to go to the cross to deal with our lies. Uh, the, the cross ushers in a far more powerful aroma than, than our lies. It's actually the aroma of death. The aroma of death on the cross dispels the aroma of our sins and our lies. Because on the cross, the aroma of Christ's death is, is the same aroma of the death of your sins. The aroma of Christ's death on the cross expels the death of your sins when you confess them. You enter into that. And so we do this with confidence because forgiveness in this passage is promised. When we confess at the cross, you receive the freedom from self-deception and you see your sin openly. And at the same time, you see God's love for the world on display. So we go to the cross, brothers and sisters, and we lay our name, our sins there. Um, and and what, what this actually does is that it leads to the next part. It makes us the people of the kingdom. When you confess your sins, uh, you become a person of obedience. Confession leads to obedience. How does this work? Um, I'll just share a quick story of my own, my own, um, my own life. I began um, a, a number of years ago to begin, I, I was struck, um, actually I remember on my birthday in 2019, <laughs> this, I don't know why, I remember, the Lord struck me with, Joshua, living out of fear. And I, so I just began for a year just to confess that I was living out of fear to the Lord and confess it and confess it and confess it. And what that led to then was a confession and a realization that part of my fear was that I didn't think, um, I didn't think God had given me the gifts I thought I should have. And what he was telling me was, no, no, I just need you to be a jar of clay. I was given that image from scripture, a, a, just a fragile jar of clay. And so then my confession for fear became a confession of, Lord, help me just accept who you made me to be. Help me to accept being a fragile jar of clay. And as I began to confess that, and I confessed that over many weeks and many months, the Lord then brought me a new confession, which was part of my fear came because I had linked my self-worth to other people. I was afraid all the time because what you think, and I've, I've shared this before, what you think of me became actually who I was. And so the Lord said, do you, do you notice something about a jar? It has edges. And, and what, what I need you to do is just confess Lord, help me just to be within my own edges, my own self. Now, I'm getting to the point in a minute. But, but I want you to see, confession over many years led me to confess, Lord, just help me to be who you made me to be. Help me to know the edges of myself. And here's where that led to obedience over many years. This past week on the missions trip, I had a profound sense of being able to obey God's call to love people because other people's opinions did not determine who I was. And so I was able to obey out of confession. Because God, over years, had worked in me a sense of, you are not other people's opinions. And so you're free to actually just love them. Confession leads to obedience. It reveals pathways for us to obey what God calls us to. And so then we can be a people of his kingdom, right? Go to the cross, and then we become people of his kingdom. Uh, his death and resurrection actually offer, ushers in the kingdom in this world. And so we have a new story. Uh, the truth of God does not lead us away from life, 
but it leads us to follow him in this present physical world by obeying all of his commands. Uh, the word obedience actually here is to be watchful. It's, like, it's not like just sort of a lockstep, you know, like I'm a robot, but it's more like I, I watch over his commands, I care for them, I look at them, I observe them um, with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then what you find out as you obey, of course, is that what does obedience lead to? As you try and obey, as you try and follow God in his kingdom purposes, it leads you back to confession, doesn't it? Um, the mission trip, we just had this experience. We, the kids went to a, um, a summer camp. They were being obedient kingdom children. They went to serve um, at the summer camp. And what they found when they got there was there was very little to actually do. <laughs> they, they were being obedient. And what they had to come back, and as, as a group, we had to confess, oh, we think that we're the ones who are bringing the goodness. Their obedience led to confession. Oh, no, no, Lord, it's actually what you're doing in and through us, and sometimes that'll look different from the way we think. Their obedience led to confession. And confession leads to obedience. And this is what God calls us to do. And the two can never be separated. So um, when you confess your sins at the cross, you find pathways for our kingdom obedience in your life. Uh, and and I, hope, I hope what this, what this translates to us as a community, and I'm just, just, just to end is a couple things. What does it mean for us to be a community of cross and kingdom? We go to the cross and confess our sins. We are, we are obedient we, um, to, to God's kingdom purposes. Well, a couple things. First, um, it allows us to become unattached from uh, worldly philosophies and ideologies that actually separate the two. Because I hope what you're hearing is, is also some of our worldly ideologies and philosophies and political approaches attached to one or the other. Right? Cross, moral goodness, kingdom, social transformation, right? As general categories. And what a Christian, a Christian cannot separate the two. We're people of the cross and we're people of the kingdom. And so we're freed from this binary thinking that either we're one or the other. We're about personal renewal and social flourishing, both cross and kingdom. When we're people of cross and kingdom, it also frees us from exalting personal freedom and success over love. Um, to live as Jesus lived, which verse 6 tells us to do, um, we're, we're a community that's willing to suffer for the sake of the world. Our life is not just about comfort. Crossing kingdom, we're people who are willing to suffer for the sake of others. And then finally, um, and the worship team can come forward, um, finally, um, when we're people of crossing kingdom, actually our love and our witness grow stronger. Um, because think about it. Um, have you ever been cared for by a person uh, who clearly has no sense of their own flaws? In other words, has anybody ever come into your life and tried to do something for you who, who has an evidence of a lack of confession in their own life? Do you know what I'm talking about? You have somebody who's like, I'm clearly the helper and you're a lesser person. People of the crossing kingdom, are, are, we, we move out in love out of our own sense of need of grace as well. Our witness is stronger when we're people of the crossing kingdom. And likewise, our, our personal confession, our personal renewal, um, and this is what I, when I made that little joke about the best thing coming out of seminary was for me to go on a missions trip. I was doing all this soul intellectual work, 
but I was, my witness is stronger when I'm forced to go out and serve somebody else. We're not just living up here, right? We become people of cross and kingdom. So, so this is the invitation for us, brothers and sisters. Let's, let's be, this week, let's be a people who go to the cross, who confess our sins, um, and, then, and then love others as we, as we advance God's kingdom purposes in the world. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you do call us to, um, you free us from lies. You free us from the deceptions that we build in ourselves. And you give us your cross where we can confess our sins. And then you lay before us a purpose, Lord, in your kingdom. We give thanks for these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.